Aaron Rodgers, the Green Bay Packers quarterback who took the reins from Brett Favre. How much do you think there was a reluctance on his part to get close to you? I can tell you on my side there was nothing but cheerleading and hard work and I kept my mouth shut. How he managed the pressure and why he believes he's his own worst critic. I'm still going to be tossing and turning at night about one or two throws that I should have thrown better. I sat down with Aaron Rodgers in 2010. We begin as he explains the roller coaster of going from a top 10 pick to 24th overall in the NFL draft. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. Coming out of high school, how many D1 football scholarship offers did you get? Zero. Zero? Mm -hmm. Why do you think you were unable to get one? Uh, a combination of a number of things. I think that um, the area that I grew up in is not heavily recruited. Um, the offense that we ran, it's not like, uh, I think there's a trend lately that the spread has kind of filtered down from the college to high school. A lot of teams are throwing the ball. 40, 50 times a game. Now, I put up pretty big numbers, but um, not a lot of people really knew about me. And then I think, you know, there's so many outlets now for kids to get exposure uh, with the different Nike camps they can go to and combines and, and team camps and stuff where you can get your name out there. Uh, I don't think people up in Chico really knew about that. I, myself and my family, we didn't know about that. So I didn't really have a chance to get any exposure out there. And, and thus, I was getting recruited by Occidental and Lewis and Clark and Claremont McKenna and some of these schools that, um, you know, the, the normal college football fan probably hasn't heard of. And Occidental, I understand, wanted you to actually even sit out a year. How did you handle not getting any D1 football scholarship offers coming out of high school? It just made me work that much harder, I think. Um, you know, there was a big... Uh, a big moment for me in the spring because I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, was I going to walk on somewhere because I had applied to some different schools? Was I going to walk on? Was I going to do something different? Was I going to play baseball because I played that spring? Um, and then Coach Rigsby from Butte College approached me and, and said, hey, you know, we'd love for you to come out and, and compete for the job. And uh, I also had some opportunities to play at different junior colleges and, and ultimately decided to play at, at Butte and then played in this all-star game in the summer after my senior year. And that was a game that really gave me a lot of confidence back that um, I played pretty well. I ran around, ran around pretty well. I'd trained all summer kind of leading up to this game and, and that was a, a big confidence boost for me. How much consideration did you give to quitting football before you got to college? Uh, I gave it a, definitely some serious consideration. Um, you know, at the time I was weighing, uh, after my spring baseball year, which went pretty well, uh, pitching at least, batting was a, a struggle. You were thrown in the low 90s, uh, I hear? It gets better every year, yeah. No, 95, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I, I was throwing uh, definitely pretty hard. There were uh, supposedly a couple scouts who, who had came and, and looked at me at some point. But uh, that was my only year, only year of baseball since my eighth grade season. Um, and I was really considering playing summer baseball an opportunity to play with the uh, the Legion team in town, or uh, train and play in this, this all-star football game and then go to Butte College, or just do something completely different. So those are kind of three options I was weighing, and, and uh, football still my first love, so I kind of won out. Tell me about that rejection letter you got from Purdue. That was, I think, the first rejection letter I got. You know, it's interesting, uh, being in Chico, California, the most interest I got 
and a lot of the film that we sent out was to Big Ten schools. I got a letter a week from the University of Wisconsin. Um, yeah, and I'm smiling because it's funny looking back, obviously not at the time. Though. No, I mean, it's, it's, uh, the story is the most important thing, and, and it makes it all the much uh, sweeter for me. But it's funny that uh, you know, Wisconsin was recruiting me. We sent stuff to Purdue, uh, Illinois, the head coach, Ron Turner. His, uncle, his, his nephew was actually my quarterback coach in high school as well. So I went out to his camp, and they offered another kid in the camp. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just the, the Purdue letter just said, uh, you know, you don't match up well against guys we're evaluating. And uh, I think there was a line in there that uh, I might have highlighted. Yeah, what was that? Uh, I think it said, uh, good luck with your uh, aspirations um, in football or something like that. Which uh, I know they didn't mean any ill will about it. Sure. But I sure, I sure took that to heart and, and, and took that as a slap in the face and said, okay. So what do you recall from the first time you met with Coach Rigsby? My mom said, you know, no son of mine, you know, will go to Butte College, uh, and, and, which is extremely ironic now and funny. But um, first time I met with Coach Rigsby, it was, I think, eye-opening for my mom, especially, just to see, number one, you know, what a great guy he was, and number two, how much he cared about um, Butte College and, and advancing his players and the stories he told and um, just the love that he had for, for those guys he'd coached and how much he wanted to see them be successful. And that started to change her mind and her opinion of Butte. Uh, me, that was definitely, the, it was definitely Butte over, over Shasta and really anywhere else that was looking at me once we got later in the spring and, um, and eventually that was uh, where I ended up. You only ended up spending one season at Butte, though, because very quickly uh, Cal coach Jeff Tedford, with the blessing of Coach Rigsby, came in, offered you a scholarship after just a year. What do you recall from how that all happened? Well, I think that's the one thing that, that uh, I'll always uh, really appreciate about Coach Rigsby is that that doesn't happen everywhere. You know, when you get a guy, especially, um, you know, when you get a guy who's playing well, which I was playing very well the first year. As a true freshman. As a true freshman. I mean, you want, you care about your program first. That, I mean, the 99% of the college coaches. Now, I did when I met with Coach Rigsby the first time. I said, look, if I have one good, if I have a good year, you know, how do you feel about me leaving? And he was totally on board, said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll definitely support you. I won't stand in your way. But, um, you know, it was definitely uh, crazy when Coach Tedford showed up, and um, he was, it's funny now because I'm taller than him, but I felt like he was about 6'8", and had, had these glasses on, and I was ruling, I think everybody was, was on edge that day, like, oh, we got a college coach here. It was a Monday, which we usually don't do anything, but Coach let us go on the side and, and throw the ball around a little bit. And, and you knew in advance he was coming. I, we, I knew earlier that day, I had heard, there's little whispers on campus he was coming. So I was, I was a little nervous, obviously, but um, coach let us throw on the side and I hit every pass and, and uh, the rest is history. The 2005 NFL draft that day, your father said it was like not getting any scholarship offers out of high school times a thousand. Uh, the most challenging part of that day for you would be what? The camera just on you the entire time and having to keep it together. Um, you know, and watching uh, drafts since then, you know, it's all different now, but, um, you know, Brady Quinn was able to leave the green room after nine picks, and here I am, you know, we're in the 20s, and they're cleaning up the other six tables that they had set up in there, and, and you know, here I am sitting there with my mom and dad and, and my brother and, and my best friend and my agent, my business manager, and, and you got the camera right here looking at you the entire time and knowing that there's, you know, 
a ton of people watching this and and knowing I got to keep it together when really I just wanted to uh, just go somewhere and be alone and, and not have to deal with this and, and just kind of wake me up when it's over feeling. Embarrassed? Yeah, there's definitely some embarrassment, you know, because I accepted the invite thinking I was going to be a top 10 pick and this was going to be a, you know, a slam dunk, uh, in and out, boom, off to the team interview that night and first night in the city that hopefully I'll spend my entire career at and next thing you know I'm four hours into this and still no, nobody's picking me and we're looking at the toughest stretch was after we got past 16 which I don't know if it was the Saints or Carolina or somebody who, had the, who was a long shot but the last kind of potential was between 17 and 23 there was no way I was getting picked they had all established starters so I'm thinking to myself man that's you know 15 minutes for each team so that's an hour and a half and that was a tough hour and a half because it was just then you're just thinking about Everything that happened from when I declared January to the work I put in um, at the naval base in Alameda, busting my butt every morning, um, to the diet I went on, to how I did the combine, to my private workout, just all these things going through your mind, like could I have done something different? Could I have done it better? Should I have stayed another year? I mean, just all these just thoughts and just wondering, haven't I done things the right way? Shouldn't this be easier than this? Um, and then finally, the Raiders traded up, and I thought they might take me, and then they didn't, and then Green Bay I, took I, me. I talked to your father, Ed, and he said the hardest part of that day was when you and your family thought that you were actually going to get drafted by the Raiders. Uh, they, what do you think? Uh, they, I mean, I don't know about that. Like that's that's his that's his story. But at by the time you know we're four and a half hours in this, I'm just thinking, just I don't care who who picks me. Um, you know, you kind of do research at least in my training facility, we did research on like the first 10 teams. We thought it was gonna be a top 10 pick. Like, so I knew who their GM was, what their stadium was called, what city they were in, where most of the guys lived, who was on the team, you know? You get back to 23, 24, I'm like, Green Bay, all right, that's in Wisconsin, I think. I probably couldn't find it on a map. Uh, I know Brett Favre's there. I don't really know anybody else on the team, uh, except for maybe p stuff I can remember from playing Madden. Uh, so it was kind of funny. <laughs> it's pretty funny. You and Alex Smith, obviously, the top quarterbacks uh, on the board for that draft, the 49ers with the number one overall pick. You are the hometown California kid. The 49ers were the team that you were a lifelong fan of. What did you think the likelihood was that they were going to draft you? Pretty strong especially when I met with them. Um, you know, there's an article that was done when they were still looking for a coach and it said like, uh, hire this guy in a picture of Coach Tedford, draft this guy a picture of me. Um, I just thought it was uh, the perfect uh, situation. You know, a California kid who'd been a lifelong Niner fan. I thought at the time I was almost NFL ready quarterback coming out of college because I played in the pro style system. Was it a certainty? in your mind? No, no, because I, I, don't, I don't look at things, I don't usually don't look at things like that, but um, after I went and met with them, and uh, my agent met with them, I had a good feeling about, you know, what they were thinking, um, and I just thought it was meant to be. How, how would you describe the feeling of hearing the commissioner say Alex Smith's name as the first overall pick? Well, we knew it was gonna happen. Uh, you know, we had a meeting that morning with my agent and my family and everybody was there because there was about 30 people that was there, uh, family and close friends. And they said, look, you know, just prepare yourself for a long day. I don't know how long it's gonna be. Alex is going number one. 
Miami, who was interested in you at the time, not going to pick you. Tampa, John Gruden, who called me Thursday before the draft, said he's taking me. He's not going to take you. Eight is a possibility at Arizona. After that, we just hope that your value outweighs uh, other needs. So we knew I wasn't going early, but we were still hopeful it would be within the first couple hours. Looking back, I believe you said what was most important to you wasn't so much the numbers you put up, but the comments you got from fans about how you handled yourself leading up to becoming a starter. What about that was most meaningful? Uh, just the, the type of people, I think, that, that would come up to me. You know, that was really an after-the-season thing. But, um, you know, the, the highlight from that season was exiting the field after we beat an 0-16 Detroit Lions team, but getting a standing ovation, as I did a, a post-game interview with the last one on the field. And that was one of the all-time greatest moments of my, my sports career. And we're running off, you know, we're 6-10. and 10. We just finished the season, losing record out of the playoffs, disappointing season. But to get a standing ovation like that was one of the most amazing feelings of my life. And then after the season, um, as I normally do, there's a number of charity events I like to do across the country for different guys I've gotten to know over the years. And the comments I got from random fans at, say, an airport or a restaurant or a mall um, were most meaningful because, you know, it was the same, same kind of stuff. I was like, hey, I didn't know, I wasn't a fan of yours. I didn't really know much about you, but because of the situation you were in, I followed you, and I appreciated the way you handled things and, be and became a fan because of that. So that, to me, is the most, it was the most important thing to me. It was, it was a lot easier to play football that year than to stand in front of the media and answer the kind of questions I had to. And because I, I handled it with as much class and integrity and humility, hopefully, as I, as I you know, wanted to, that, to me, um, the, the ramifications of that, the echoes of that, um, I think really gained me a lot of popularity. And for that, you know, I'm, I'm very appreciative. Thanksgiving 2009, Packers, Lions, you throw a seven-yard touchdown pass to Donald Driver that you call the greatest play you've ever been a part of. Why? Uh, because it was a, a play built completely around trust. It was probably the first play that I did, it, I did what I shouldn't have done. I threw it where I shouldn't have thrown it, and Donald ran the route he shouldn't have ran. But because we were thinking the exact same thing, it was a touchdown. And it just came, a bit of, came together beautifully. It was one of those situations where I got inside his mind, he got inside my mind. And when it happens like that, it, it's one of the most amazing things and feelings, knowing that I look at him, he looks back at me. I don't look at him again. I drop back, they do something they hadn't shown. He runs something he'd never ran before, and I threw it to where a place I hadn't thrown it before. We're on the exact same page, and that's just a special feeling. How do you get to that point? Uh, experience, I think, repetition, practice, um, and then just talking. I, I think, you know, just the, the time that we spend in a meeting room going over a film and talking about, about different things and then just reading body language. I, it was just trusting that, you know, when he did a certain thing with his arms, he was going inside and he was going to turn around. Or he should have ran a corner, he ran a stop route. And I threw it to the stop route and while he may have been thinking I was going to throw the corner. You've talked about the game essentially slowing down for you. How so? Uh, it's just a, a feeling, a comfort in the pocket. It's a comfort in the line of scrimmage. I think the key to that is you've got to become an expert of your offense. Um, and, and once you become an expert of your offense, the game slows down once you start to understand defenses and how they're trying to stop you and, and, and body language and, 
and learn how to watch film. And when you combine all that with experience, I think the game really becomes um, just a very methodical chess match. Um, and, and it does slow down for you because you, you, I think what slows down the most is not your body or not your arm. It's, it's uh, you know, your, your mind. Your mind's not racing. I remember when I was a rookie, when you break the huddle, I'm thinking about a hundred different things. And now when I break the huddle, I don't even think about what my guys are doing. I know where they're at. I'm just thinking about how the defense can stop us. And if they do this, I'm doing that. If they show this look, I got to do this. And that's when the game starts to become almost more like a practice tempo. I spoke to your brother Jordan recently, and he said you always tell him, play fast, but don't be in a hurry. What does that mean? Well, I kind of stole that from John Wooden, I think. Uh, I think he said, be quick, but don't be in a hurry. Um, but that means that uh, you always want to be playing uh, at, a, at a good tempo. You, you, you drop, your movement in the pocket, your decision-making needs to be decisive. But I think when you start to hurry yourself, it's, a, it's more of a mindset that um, slow things down in your mind, but continue to play fast with your body. You talked about when the huddle breaks, but what about when the ball's hiked, it's in your hands, what are you looking for, what are you seeing? I have a few keys I like to look at each play, depending on what the team is. And, and how does that impact what you do? It just, it, it, it can help me figure out what the defense is doing. Because like I said, I know what our offense is doing. I just need to find out very quickly what kind of look I'm, I'm, I'm seeing on defense. You know, does he open his hips up? Is he, is he square-shouldered? Is he blitzing? What coverages they play behind him when he blitzes? So all that stuff, information has to be processed in nanoseconds, and, and, and that leads me, allows me to be a, a quick decision maker. Why do you believe you'll be able to sustain your success as quarterback over a long career? Well, two reasons. One, I'm, I'm a hard worker. I have a good work ethic. And I think I know how to work now in the offseason. And that's really, um, I think, given me a, a great foundation as far as getting my body in really good shape. And then two, I'm my own worst critic. Um, I'm, you know, to a fault, I'm almost too hard on myself and, and, and not complacent with the way I'm playing ever. You know, I want to be the best. Your father, Ed, and your good friend, Dave Lonnie, both told me that they believe you expect, when it's all said and done, to be essentially the greatest quarterback ever to live. To what extent is that true? Uh, that's really not something I think about too much. Um, but I, I mean, is that an expectation that you have for yourself? No, no, I'm, I mean, again, that's, that's not something I've really ever thought about. That's something that, that'll happen down the road and, and be sorted out down the road. Right now, I just wanna win games and win championships. You mentioned your, your own worst critic. Is there an example of how hard you've been on yourself after a particular game or a play? Uh, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm just never satisfied. I think I'm always searching for that perfect game. And even when you, you could diagnose a game where I played my best or had my best quarterback rating, I'm still going to be tossing a turn at night about, you know, one or two throws that I should have thrown better or a decision I should have, you know, I should have made that I didn't make, or a check I should have made that I, that I made the wrong check. So, um, unfortunately, that doesn't allow me to sleep very well. Um, and, instead of, you know, maybe need to focus more on the, on the positives at times. What did you most learn from Brett Favre? Uh, I mean, that's a tough question, to, to, to nail it down to just one thing. I think that um, 
you know, I learned a lot on the field watching him. Um, you know, I think he, uh, he definitely revolutionized the game with some of the things that he, he did incorporating his game, um, eye control, um, the kind of throws that he made. Uh, so I definitely try to incorporate some of those things. Um, but I definitely learned, learned a lot by watching in those three years. I know everybody loves talking about your relationship with him. In your opinion, how much do you think there was a reluctance on his part to get close to you because you were the one that was brought in to essentially take over for him? I'm sure that made for an interesting dynamic, I know, in his mind. Um, you know, being a, you know, a veteran, uh, having played you know, multiple seasons and been the guy for multiple seasons, and then him, the team drafting the guy uh, to eventually take your place, um, but I can tell on I can tell you on my side there was nothing but but cheerleading and hard work, and I kept my mouth shut. And uh, the other feelings, I think you probably have to ask him about. And this is someone that I think you long admired, leading up to even becoming a Packer. I believe you had the number four at Butte College, at least in part because that was. Brett Favre's number, if the roles were reversed and you were the veteran, legendary quarterback who was still playing at a high level but was aging some and the rookie quarterback was brought in, how would you handle the relationship differently? Uh, you know what, it's hard to, it's hard to, to talk about that because I, I, wouldn't, I don't think I'd know until I was in the situation. I think uh, for the betterment of the game, it's important to um, to look for ways to, to bring along the next generation of quarterbacks. And Drew Brees, um, who I look at uh, as like a, a role model to me, even though he's, he's not that much older than I am, uh, you know, he's a guy I think who does a good job at that. I mean, he's been great uh, with me just talking about different situations and talking about how to take the, the next, next step, um, showing me how hard he works, uh, being a leader among leaders in that workout group. And I think it's just important as a fraternity of quarterbacks over the years, uh, you know, to help you know, the next guy because that's helping out a league that's been great to you. When the Packers did draft you, knowing that Brett Favre was the starting quarterback and planned to continue playing for the foreseeable future, what was your reaction? Well, I was just excited I got drafted first and then didn't really know much about Green Bay. Uh, so I was excited about just a, a change, you know, a, a place that, that wanted me. Um, I had no idea what I was in for um, and the challenges that I would face in going from being the starter to not being the starter. That's a tough, I think, mental switch um, to turn off some of those highly competitive juices and find other ways to challenge yourself. Um, so that was a good, very good learning experience for me. And those three years were invaluable, I think, not only to get myself in very good shape, uh, to heal up from some injuries I suffered in college, but to get myself mentally in a really good place. What do you think you most learned during those three years? Mm, control the things that you can control. Uh, worry about the things that you can have a direct impact on. Uh, there's so many things in this game and in life that, that I had absolutely no control over. But being a, um, somebody who desires perfection, a perfectionist, it's hard when you don't have um, an opportunity to have an impact on something. And that could be a game, a situation, um, a feeling. Um, and just I just think I learned that, you know, in those situations, that it's, it's just a waste of energy 
to worry about things you can't, you can't control and you just go crazy uh, thinking and worrying about those things. Thank you very much. Looks like you gotta run. All right, thanks dude. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger and visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.